new piano, new intro. You know, I don't know if I've ever said this before, but in case you don't recognize that intro music, which I completely understand because that melody is normally carried by a clarinet in the original orchestral version, those are the opening bars to Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. And the outro that you hear every episode is the closing bars of Rhapsody in Blue. Something I probably should have mentioned back in episode number one. But hey, better late than never. I'm willing to bet most of you already knew that anyway. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Welcome back to the Piano Rhapsody Podcast, an amateur's guide to classical piano. In case this is the first episode you are hearing, let me fill you in on what you're getting yourself into. This is a podcast where you follow my journey as an amateur piano player. We started the very first episode with Fur Elise, and the end goal is Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Every week, we take a look at one of the pieces I encounter along the road, and we explore the history surrounding the piece and discuss some of its musical components. This podcast is primed to be a welcome mat to the world of classical music, so even if you do not have a lick of prior knowledge in distinguishing Bach from Beethoven from Brahms, you're welcome here, and you found a safe place. This is episode 6.1, the start of a brand new series. We're going to continue our spotlight sojourn through musical history this week with a stop in the classical period, which spans the years 1750 to 1825. We spent series 5 focusing on a collection of works by Bach and looked extensively into the Baroque style, which was all about control and counterpoint, or weaving multiple melodic voices simultaneously into one work. Very strict rules, and with some serious limitations due to the fact that the harpsichord was the dominant keyboard instrument at the time. The classical period was revolutionized by the invention and growing popularity of the piano, which allowed keyboard music to be written with more dynamic expression, as the piano had the new ability to vary its volume from loud to soft, which is evident in the name bestowed upon this brand new musical invention, a forte piano, or to translate the Italian quite literally, a loud soft. But the musical ideas were also changing. There was an urge to return to more simple times, specifically to ancient Greek and Roman society, which gives the classical era its name. Baroque music was considered too ornate and highbrow, so classical composers wanted to make their music more accessible. Instead of writing compositions like the Baroque fugues, which could have up to four or five voices at one time, the classical composers took out their carving knives and pared these voices down to one, a musical concept called homophony. I mean, sure, counterpoint and polyphony still existed during this time, but it was not the dominant musical texture. In the classical period, we will more commonly be able to focus on a single melodic line in one hand, with an accompanying part in the other, instead of both hands duking it out with countering melodic lines. Speaking generally, this ideal of homophony typically makes classical music less dense than Baroque music. It's a lighter, more easily digestible sonic meal. Aside from the advent of the piano, the other major development to the keyboard during this period was the popularity of the sonata form. While the Baroque period brought secular dances to popularity and Bach finessed the concept of fugues and preludes, 
the classical period offered the immensely popular sonata form to the music world. And that brings us to the start of our series today. We explored this concept briefly during our first trip to the classical period in episode 3.2, with the dissection of the musical form of a sonatina. But today, we are going to start a new series where we look into a pair of Ludwig van Beethoven's piano sonatas. Beethoven wrote 32 piano sonatas across the years 1795 to 1822. He also wrote three sonatas in the years 1782 to 1783, but these are usually not included in the count because he was only 13 when they were published. Because of this span of time, it is arguable to confine Beethoven's career in a single musical period. I think his later works, especially considering their style, could and should be considered early romantic, but the two sonatas we are going to discuss in this series fall pretty squarely into the traditional classical style. Beethoven was highly influenced by the sonatas of Haydn and Mozart, who had firmly cemented the structure of the piano sonata but he definitely branched out on his own by the latter half of his career. There was a German conductor and pianist named Hans von Bülow, and if that name rings a bell, it's because he's the same von Bülow who unofficially named all of Chopin's preludes, like we talked about in episode 2.2. So von Bülow sanctified Beethoven's sonatas as the, quote, New Testament of Piano Literature, end quote paired with Bach's well-tempered clavier, of course, as the Old Testament. Von Bülow was the first guy to play all of the piano sonatas in a single concert cycle, which blows my mind. This would take at least eight or nine hours of piano playing. How does someone play all of this music at will, let alone commit that much music to memory? As someone who struggles to memorize a two-page piece of music, this kind of pursuit seems unfathomable. I would struggle to remember the order of the sonatas, let alone their content. And von Bülow is not the only one to do this throughout history. This feat has been successfully emulated multiple times. I just happened to see an article where Canadian pianist Stuart Goodyear did this in 2012 by splitting the concert into three batches throughout the day. You know, I enjoy classical piano as much as the next guy, I mean, clearly, I'm hosting a podcast about the subject. But nine hours of Beethoven in one day might be a little excessive. It'd be like watching the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy in one day. Or watching Gone with the Wind back to back. I guess I'm a believer in the expression, too much of a good thing. So throughout this series, we are going to talk about Beethoven's Opus 49, which includes sonatas number 19 and number 20. I'll say right off the bat that these two probably deserve an asterisk when scanning the entire list of Beethoven's sonatas, because they're not only the shortest of the sonatas, but also the easiest, by a fairly significant margin. Beethoven's career is typically split into three periods, early, middle, and late. Opus 49 was published in 1805, which would suggest early middle period, but the works were actually composed 10 years prior, so they are more of a reflection of Beethoven's early period. We'll discuss this publication delay in more detail next week. A majority of Beethoven's sonatas have either three or four movements, but there are four of them that contain only two. These are two of the four. 
They're the shortest of the sonatas at about eight minutes each. The first movement is in sonato allegro form, and the second is a dance in rondo form. Number 19 is in the key of G minor, and number 20 is in the key of G major. So this pair of sonatas is definitely related on several aspects. There is very little debate that these are the easiest of all the sonatas. Beethoven actually gave these to his friends and students to play. And even when you compare these two sonatas to each other, number 20 in G major stands out as the least technically demanding. So that's where we're going to begin today. Since these two sonatas have two movements each, I figured we could tackle one movement a week, making this a four-week series. So let's begin with Beethoven's Sonata No. 20 in G major. Movement number 1, Allegro Manon Troppo, meaning fast, but not too fast. Aside from being a bit simplistic, especially for Beethoven, a common criticism of this movement is that it is too boxy meaning each of the elements of the sonata form are basically thrown together without much of an effort to tie them together. But this actually works out for us, because it'll be a perfect template to talk about the different elements of the sonata form without being too complex. So let's get started. The first section of the sonata allegro form is the exposition. During the exposition, two themes are introduced. Theme number one, opens in the home key of the sonata, while theme number two is presented in a closely related but different key. And if we've learned anything from Bach, this is typically the dominant or fifth key, or the relative key. So the sonata opens with the declaration of theme number one in the home key of G major. Right out of the gate, the sonata basically yells out its key with a G major chord and arpeggio. Then, once the first theme plays out, the key jumps to the dominant for theme number two. And since we started out in the key of G major, to reach the dominant, we ride the circle of fifths up. G, A, B, C, D. Everybody out, we've arrived. The second theme in the dominant key of D major is a little softer and more lyrical than the first. So once the themes are established, we enter the section of the sonata form called the development. This is generally the meatiest section of the sonata, where the composer takes the themes and tries them out in different ways, twisting them and turning them, chopping them up, turning them upside down, etc. This is the time to be creative and take chances. This is one of the reasons why this movement is often criticized, because Beethoven offers a short, weak development here. You'll know when the development arrives when it declares itself with a D minor chord, which is shocking contrast to everything we've heard thus far. The development continues with a short segment that is probably the most interesting in the entire movement, 
a brief section where the left hand drums out a stream of monotonous B notes, while the right hand plays a spin on a motif from theme number one. But it doesn't last long, because we soon find ourselves back in the key of G major, and ready to move on to the third and final section of the sonata. The recapitulation is the last major section of the sonata allegro form, and probably the most straightforward. During this section, you should get a warm, fuzzy feeling of home. After being toyed around in the development section, the key finally returns to the home key, and we hear a recall of both themes from the exposition. The major difference is that this time around in the recapitulation, both themes return in the home key, even theme number two. So while theme number one is almost identical in the recapitulation, this time around, theme number two is transposed from the dominant key of D major back down to G major. This gives the overall feeling that the entire thematic material has resolved. So now the movement can end. And end it does in none other but the home chord of G major. So let's listen to the whole movement, trying to identify the parts of the form. I will be guiding your listening here with not-so-subtle clues, but the standalone recording in the podcast feed will be just the music. So if you want to test yourself, check that out. Here is movement number one from Beethoven's Opus 49, number two, also known as Sonata Number 20 in G major. Exposition, theme one. Exposition, theme two. Development. Development. 
Recapitulation, Theme 1 Recapitulation, Theme 2 A solid start. Not a very ambitious work, but well-crafted. I mean, it is Beethoven after all. And an excellent way to dip our toes into the classical period pool. Next week, we'll take a look at the second movement from the sonata, which is written in a dance format. The standalone recording of the sonata movement, without my guided listening prompts, can be found directly in the podcast feed. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody or email me at pianorhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, for lending me your time and your ears. And if this was by chance the first time you clicked on this podcast and you've made it to this point, a special thanks to you. Please hit subscribe, rate, and review if you feel so inclined. I would be glad to have you join us on this weekly venture. Next week, we'll check out the second movement of this sonata and learn more about why Opus 49 was so delayed in publishing. I know you'll be on the edge of your seats until then. Talk to you next time.